Father's uh, uh, Father, it's your spirit that opens the eyes of our heart, that enlightens our souls and our minds. And we ask you to do that this morning so that we can hear each one of us that thing or those things that you mean for us. And, and Father, also, uh, later as we declare those things that are true of you in worship, would you engage our hearts and our minds to see you as you are and to give you your due in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, on a serious note, there's an article that came out a month ago. This isn't the only one. This is the one I happen to have read. In Standpoint Magazine, it's a conservative British magazine published monthly. You can read this article online should you care to. But the article is written by a guy who doesn't have an axe to grind with Martin Luther King Jr. But what has happened is that transcripts of FBI recordings that were part of a Senate subcommittee hearing in the 70s are, were made available. And so this guy wrote his article on Martin Luther King Jr. based on those transcripts of audio recordings. And to call them unflattering would be uh, understatement. So basically, these are transcripts of his illicit extramarital trysts in hotels around the country uh, with one or more women at a time, and the transcripts are, they're, they're vile is a, is a good word. The, I'm sure that when this comes out, the, the, the picture that's painted of King is so different from his public persona that I suspect for a lot of people there will be a sense of unbelief and unwillingness to believe what this author has written from FBI transcripts. But in 2027, the audio recordings will be released. They've been under a moratorium for 50 years under a court order. But unless they're destroyed, uh, you, people will be able to hear what King said in a number of these settings that are unflattering, to say the least. Now, the Wall Street Journal followed that article with another ed op piece by Lance Morrow. And, and this is what, in part, this is what he said as he wound down his his article. He said this about King and these revelations. He said, we're running out of paragons or examples of excellence, of moral excellence. He said, I believe in great man theories of history. And that basically means that history pivots, turns, is supported significantly by singular individuals like Martin Luther King. Or believe in any case that the absence of moral leaders such as King is a catastrophe. A country without heroes becomes either savage or monstrously petty. Dull and mean. What we have today is a toxic compound of savagery and pettiness made even worse by the ruthless self-importance of identity politics. We've grown profligate. We've grown immoral in destroying heroes. He says, I don't think we can afford to lose Dr. King. And then this is how he winds down. And this is all, of course, by way of introduction to our message. He says, the way out, I'd say, is grace. If anyone believes in grace anymore. It's become a rare thing in American public life. Martin Luther King was complicated and some of his behavior was vile. Yet he gave his life, gave it knowingly for the sake of the country, for blacks and also for whites, he deserves the grace of his country's forbearance. Now that's a mouthful 
in the, in the era of the Me Too movement. So we'll see how this plays out culturally larger after this article and of course in several more years when the audio recordings come out. But by way of introduction, I'm bringing this up. We're going to look at uh, King David this morning in the Heroes and Villains series. This is the 29th message. And I would say that we need to apply to King David the same thing that Morrow applied to Martin Luther King. Because the truth is, on one hand, David, David stands, as we'll see. He's, he's this great hero of the faith in the Old Testament. But of course, if you look at him long enough, you see this vile, treacherous, unfaithfulness towards his friend Uriah, his, her, his wife Bathsheba, and also, of course, ultimately to God himself. In fact, when God reproves David, God accuses David of doing just what Eli the high priest had done. He says, you've despised me in what you've done. So we're gonna, this is going to be a short lesson this morning because I'm making time, believe it or not. Um, for uh, an extended uh, introduction of some opportunities to serve later. So we're going to be really brief. But we want, I want to come with that perspective. We're not going to look specifically at David's sin with Bathsheba and with Uriah. So remember that we're looking at paragons of faithfulness on one hand that look like Christ, that model Christ's kind of faithfulness. And David is that, certainly. And then the villains in the series, remember, they're the, they're the kind of behavior and characters that we avoid. They're unchristlike. So we're not going to get to David's great sin this morning. We're looking at the virtues. But I start with that because I want to recognize that you've got this real mix in King David. And as we saw in the life of Joab, that's true for most of us, that we are capable of greatness on one hand, even the best of us, and really base and vile behavior on the other. And certainly David was no exception to that. With that, though, we don't write David off because God didn't. We don't write David off because God didn't. And I think that applies to folks like King as well. David's bravery regarding Goliath, the battles he won, the songs he wrote, and with a couple notable exceptions, everything David did is praiseworthy in Scripture. And God's really good about telling the truth about His people. He tells you the upside and he tells you the downside. And even with David's failures, he still comes off as a paragon of faithfulness. I'm not sure that any heroic figure, and I'm using this term somewhat narrowly, heroic figure in the Old Testament stands out greater than David does. And by heroic, I'm thinking of military prowess. He wasn't a a priest like Eli. He wasn't a lawgiver like Moses. But... He was this uniting heroic character known for his courage, his bravery, but also his commitment to the Lord. So under David, that map you see on the left, the gray, it doesn't show up well here, but the gray center area, that was the kingdom of Israel under Saul. And under David, it more than doubles in size. And if you look at the one on your right, the purple is that old kingdom roughly, and the black line is the extent of modern Israel to the north today. So you can see under David's leadership, Israel took on almost all the land of promise. Not quite all, but almost all the land of promise. David is also the king. He's the measure by which every king that follows him is measured. And that's significant. David is the standard for the kings in Israel and in Judah. With his great failure, he still remains the standard. As far as heroes in the mold of warriors and kings go, David is absolutely at the top of the list. And besides being a giant slayer, 
you know, if kids know nothing about David but one thing, it's going to be David and Goliath, the giant slayer. But he's also uniquely in the annals of Scripture, he's a worshiper par excellent as well. So he's not just a worshiper, or excuse me, he's not just a warrior or a king, but he's a worshiper unusual in all the pages of the Old Testament. It's interesting also, God who knows the end from the beginning, he tells us some things about David before David ever shows up on the scene. Before we meet David, God's already given us a lens by which to think about him or see him. And this is in 1 Samuel 13, 14. If you remember the scene, uh, Samuel is reproving Saul for disobedience. And in that context, he says, your kingdom shall not continue because the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. So when we say David's a man after God's own heart, those were God's words about David. Those weren't somebody else's. They're spoken through Samuel, but that's God's take on David, on David that God knows is going to be treacherous and betraying, God still gives us that lens to see him. He's a man who has my things on his heart. I'm at the top of his list. God and God's things at the top of his list. You see later in 1 Samuel 15, it's another passage in which Samuel is reproving David's predecessor, King Saul. And he says, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Remember, we've already looked at King Saul, and he's an example of the man after the flesh, the carnal man. He can never do right because he's not reconciled to God. He has only a sinful self to present, and he gets everything wrong for that reason. And of David, Samuel says he's different than you. He's of a different sort. He's of a different kind, a different quality. Your neighbor that's going to replace you. So as we go through this morning, these are three, uh, this might be much for any of you, and you might have some different ones, but as we talk through this morning, the primary applications I'm thinking about are threefold. The first is this, is to recognize in our own lives and the lives of others that our sin and failures don't have to define us, because they didn't define David. All of us blow it, and, and guys, many of us, we're harder on ourselves than God is, but in the wrong ways. God wants repentance when we see sin, and that's certainly what you saw in the life of David. Psalm 51, Psalm 32. Uh, But we want to recognize God's grace in forgiveness as well. So our failures and the failures of others, that's equally important, right? You know, today, isn't it interesting in the culture we're in, a politician makes one slip up and they're castigated and they're thrown to the side. It doesn't matter what their positives were. That's the time and the place we live in absolutely at odds with God's values. David is an extreme example of that. So God knows the difference. God doesn't write us off because of our failures. Choosing to see life through the lens of faith, and that's specifically with Goliath. We'll look at that first. And then last, and, and this is what we always have to come back to, David's the hero of heroes in the Old Testament. And he's got feet of clay. And you remember in the series, we've always said that the heroes always point us to Christ. The heroes have feet of clay because no one but Christ is perfect. He is the hero of heroes. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And so these are always meant to point us ultimately to Christ. We want to emulate the life of Christ. We have the Spirit. We have Christ's life as believers who've entrusted ourselves into Jesus' care. 
And He is reproducing the life of Christ in us, Romans 8, transforming us into the image of His Son. But that's a work in progress. We never arrive there on the earth. And so we want to be careful that always, ultimately, we're thinking about Jesus. We're pointing to Him. So let's start with the most famous of David's stories. This is Goliath. And remember that when our story starts, everybody but David is looking at the size and the strength of a giant. And David's looking at something else entirely. And this is the lens of faith that David sees God and God's honor as the issues, not the size of the giant. Not of his military prowess. So 1 Samuel 17 you remember the scene, David's taking some gifts to his brothers and to the, the military commanders there of Saul's army and, and Israel's army is across one side of the valley of Elah and Philistines are across the other and day by day, Goliath comes out and he challenges and he's despising and he's disdaining the armies of Israel. And so, young David the shepherd goes up to King Saul and says, 1 Samuel 17.32, uh, let no man's heart fail because of him, because of that giant. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him. You're a youth. He's been a man of war from his youth. You're a young boy. He's this hardened military guy. David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. When there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. If he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. And before we continue there, David said, those sheep that belong to my dad, I took my responsibility for them so seriously that I went and chased down lions and bears to redeem those sheep. That my heart was after my dad and my dad's things, those sheep, and so nothing was going to stop me from discharging my duties. Now listen to what he says. So the Philistine will be like one of those animals. But listen to David's reasoning. He has defied the armies of the living God. David's view is not just on this giant. It's not just merely what his eyes can see. It's not us against them. It's God and God's honor. He's defied God's army. He says, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So David's whole take is God and God's things. He sees the giant, he hears him, but everything is framed by the reality of God. And by David's determination to see God and God's things elevated above anything else. You get to verse 41. They're in the valley. And listen, the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front. And the Philistine looked and saw David and he disdained him. He despised him. For he was a youth. He was ruddy or red, maybe tan, maybe red hair. Handsome in appearance. The Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? So he's probably got a shepherd's staff or shepherd's club. The Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and a javelin. You got all the elements of war. The physical stuff you've got. The size, the strength, and the stuff. You've got it. But he says, but I've come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. I'm not here on my own. I'm not here for my own things. 
I'm coming to you in Yahweh's name, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. David's confidence is not in himself. You know, he's got the slingshot. He's good with it. We're, we're good with all that. But his confidence is not in what David can pull off. By the way, if you go back and look at the story of Jonathan and his military uh, excellence, you'll see that this story looks a lot like his with the Philistine garrisons. So he says, I've come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. You've defied. The Lord will deliver you into my hand. It's not my might. It's God's. And I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, the wild beasts of the earth, and listen to his reason again, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. It's not for me, it's for God. It's for my God. It's for the God of Israel, the living and true God. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and He will give you into our hand. David's take is, is opposite everybody else's there. They're seeing what's visible in front of them, but their perspective is not the lens of faith. David sees God. He knows they're on the land God gave them and promised them. He knows that God made promises to Israel. If you follow me, I'll put your enemies down. His confidence is in God and God's word. So he's saying this is about God and God's things. This isn't about me. This isn't even about the army as the army. This is about our God. Later, Psalm 108, David wrote this. Uh, Give us help against the adversary, for deliverance by man is in vain. It's through God we will do valiantly, and it is He who shall tread down our adversaries. So the confidence there, never in himself. He's diligent. We've got to be diligent. He's diligent, but his confidence is always in God, and his motivation is for God and God's honor. For God's things, not about Himself. You got some references on your study sheet, 2 Samuel 2 and 2 Samuel 5. I won't go through those this morning for time. But what you find is David's MO is basically to find out, God, what is your priority? What do you want me to do? So he asks God, God, where should I go? And God says, go to Hebron. And he says, okay, that's where I'll go. Or he says to God, should I go up and fight the Philistines? Go up one time, he says. Another time, he says, don't go up. But Go wait by the trees. He's taking his cue from God and God's Word. His priority is God and God's honor. And you see this time and time again. It's the MO of his life. David understood. And I just think this is so important. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.18 that the things you and I can see, the, the stuff of earth, the cosmos, it's temporary. And in fact, it's not actually the controlling elements in life that Paul said it's the unseen things that are eternal. And you know, as Christians, think about this for just a second. We believe in a God we can't see. We follow a God we've never seen. And the God we say that's invisible, His sovereignly working all things after the counsel of His own will. That, that's, that's David's perspective and that's meant to be our perspective, no matter what's going on, that life is more than what we can see and we're taking our cues from a God we can't see. It's the eternal perspective of a world we can't see with these eyes that's supposed to be guiding us. 
And that raises the whole question, how do we respond to our own challenges? Whether you call them giants, walled cities, you know, use the imagery of the captivity of the land or of, of Goliath or whatever you want. But how are we doing at bringing David and therefore Christ's kind of outlook or perspective to the challenges we face in life today? Christ-like faithfulness in our lives is ultimately tied to following a God we can't see but whom we know and trust anyway. So think through elements of your own life today. How am I seeing my current challenges? You know, we've, we've got a daughter with severe uh, physical challenges. You know, and it's hard not to get caught up in just what's going on with my body. But if that's all I do... I've lost God's perspective. God, what are you doing? What's your perspective? How do you mean to honor yourself through this? Whatever the challenges are. Could be bills, could be relationship, marriage issues, challenges of one sort or another. It's not that they're not challenges. It's not that they're not real. The, the question is, like David, like Christ, what is our take on them? Are we looking at those things through the lens of faith and saying, this is ultimately about God and God's honor. This ultimately isn't about what I can pull off. But faithfulness requires me to bring God's perspective to whatever that challenge is that's facing me. Is that what we're doing? You know, and of course, ultimately, that's exactly what you see Jesus in the cross facing the greatest, most horrendous challenges sin and death on the cross becoming sin for us he's facing it but he faces it with god's outlook that there is a joy beyond death that there's life beyond the grave he has god god's things god's honor in mind and that's what we need to do as well god is a great deliverer and david knew that and as those who've been delivered you and i through faith in christ from the giants of sin and death we should know that too and we can't afford to face life just on what we see. That is the temptation, right? It's our temptation to stand with the army and hear this guy calling out and tremble in our boots. And David comes up with a very, very different perspective. There's a different outcome because he has a different heart, a different motive. Uh, the other thing I want to point out, so faithfulness in action, faithfulness in worship or praise, uh, David's known not only for his military might and success, but he's called in 2 Samuel 23.1 the sweet psalmist of Israel. And psalm is an old-fashioned word for song, but he's a musician, right? He strums a harp, he's a musician, and he's a writer. And guys, one half of the book of Psalms is penned by David. 75 of the 150 songs in that book are penned by David. And put this in perspective. So for his life, part of his life, he's a military commander. Part of his life, he's on the run, hiding in caves. Uh, part of his life, he's a successful king. And in all those stages of life, the, the constant that he's doing is he's writing songs of praise and worship. He's declaring God's excellency. And he's calling out to God in his need in those songs throughout all of his lifetime. You know, some of them are pleased. Book of Psalms is one of the most popular books in all the Bible because people go there for comfort. And, and uh, many of those are from David's pen. He needed comfort. Or he's declaring those things that are true of God. I'll bet many, if not most of us here, have part of a psalm at least memorized because we've simply gone to it so often for comfort. 
David's life wasn't just this external, it was, a, it was a remarkable life externally, but internally his life is guided all the way along through an attitude of praise and worship to God. Faithfulness was seen as worship of God. Think of uh, Hebrews, I think it's Hebrews 2, where it, qu- it applies to Jesus the phrase that said, in the midst of my brethren I will declare your praises. That Jesus was a worshiper, David was a worshiper. You see that throughout his life. All the trials, all the adventures, all the misadventures, he keeps coming back to this theme of God and a relationship with God. I was going to go through a number of the best-known quotes, but opted not to for times. But you do have a list on your study sheet of all the Psalms that David wrote. How are we at facing life's challenges? Or, or frankly, guys, the upside of life. Uh, You know, sometimes in our pain and in our loss, in our loneliness, it's easy to draw near to God. And sometimes it's in our times of plenty that we don't. But whether it's times of scarcity or times of plenty, how are we at directing our heart as worshipers of God? Remember in John 4, that's what Jesus said. The Father's looking for those who would worship in spirit and truth. And that's still true today. And that was David absolutely a paradigm of Christ-like faithfulness. Uh, the other thing you see related to David is, and th- to me, this is, this is Matthew 6.33 on demonstration. You know, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness or God's things. Put God in God's things first and He'll take care of everything else. And what you see in David's life, really writ large, is this desire to put God in God's things and God's honor first. Uh, related to the Ark of the Covenant, 2 Samuel 6, you remember the ark was a, it was a chest-sized box. It was made of wood. It was covered with gold. The lid, the gold-covered lid, was called the mercy seat. The angels there above it looking down on the mercy seat like angels in heaven. You remember that say, holy, holy, holy. Well, that was the place where God said He would dwell with Israel. So the ark was God's place of dwelling with Israel. And as soon as David is established in Jerusalem as his capital... He wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant to his hometown, to the capital of Israel. He wants to be near God. Because that's where God said He would be. That's why the tabernacle and the temple later are significant. Think of Psalm 27.4. David says, all I want to do is hang out with you, Lord. I just want to be in your presence. I want to meditate on you. I want to think about you. I want to consider you. you know, you're the goal of my heart. You're above everything else. So he tries to bring the ark in. And if you remember the story, they disrespect God because they bring in the ark like the pagan Philistines had. They put it on a cart. They have some oxen draw it. And Uzzah puts a hand out. Thing's going to fall off. God strikes him dead. David's upset. He's like, man, Lord, we're trying to honor you and you kill this guy. And and for about three months, it stays right there in the fields of Obed-Edom. Three months later, they get it. We didn't reverence God. And so... The priests carry it by the poles as they were supposed to. And listen to this language. Now this is about David. Remember, this is David's inspiration. This is his work. He's engendering everything that follows here. And listen to the description of bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And by the way, see if this rings any bells for you on other similar situations. So David went and brought up the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. 
David danced before the Lord with all his might. You guys got your dancing shoes on? Would we freak out if <laughs> David did that in front of us? I hope not. Uh, David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting, with the sound of horn. David offered burnt offerings, peace offerings before the Lord. When David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. He distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Guys, this is the biggest party in town. And it's not a drunk fest. This is the biggest party in town. It's the biggest celebration. And this is welcoming God into Jerusalem. Does this sound familiar? Does this sound like Palm Sunday? When Jesus walks into Jerusalem and Jesus is hailed and the crowds are singing His praises as He comes in. God has come to Jerusalem and David is as excited as he can be about anything and they are whooping and hollering and they are celebrating because their hearts are filled with joy in God's presence. Just like Palm Sunday. There's so many elements, by the way, you can't do justice to anybody in the Bible's biography on one message on Sunday morning. There's so many tie-ins between David and Jesus that if you just take a pen out and start reading through the stories, you'll see one after another after another. So David just wants to be where God is. And he's, he can't be any more enthusiastic than he is in seeing God's presence near him in his capital city. Now, another thing that he wants to do he tells Nathan the prophet, I feel bad. I'm in Jerusalem. I've got a lovely palace now. And God, the ark, is still in this old tent. You remember at Sinai, God told them how to make everything in the, related to the ark of the covenant and the, the candles and the little tables, etc. But there's a tent therein. And that's good if you're on the road like they were. But now they're, they're in the land of promise. And the ark is still in a tent. And so David says, this is wrong. I'm just, I'm God's representative. I'm in a palace and he's in a tent. I want to build him a temple. And God, this is 2 Samuel 7. This is one of the key promises in all of the Bible. Uh, God says to David, you're not going to build my house. The word in the Hebrew is house. Temple, we say. You're not going to build my house, but your son will. And he says, and I'll build you a house instead. And this is the house I'll build for you. I'll make a kingdom that never ends and your son will reign on it forever. Now, Solomon is a near type of that promise. So the, the temple we call Solomon's temple, in fact, David provided for. Almost entirely. The temple was always David's idea. Because David wanted to see God honored and glorified. And so this temple, in fact, listen to this. 1 Chronicles 22, David's passing the baton to Solomon. This is near the end of his life. And David says this, With great pains I have provided for the house of the Lord. So God says, you're not going to build it, but your son will. Okay, David says, I'm going to do everything I can short of building your temple, your house. So for the rest of his life, he's getting everything ready for Solomon. To build the temple. So with great pains, I've worked at this. I've labored at this. This has been my mission. I've provided for the house of the Lord. Now he starts by saying 100,000 talents of gold. Now the measures are not clear, but here's just one extrapolation. That's up to 120 million ounces of gold. On today's market, that'd be $168 billion worth of gold. 
David's contributing, he's collected for the temple. And remember, the temple, when you it's huge. Guys, this was one of the marvels of the ancient world. There would have been nothing like this. It was the biggest worship compound in the world when this was built. And the temple would have been glaring, gleaming uh, white with the stone that was used. And when you went inside, everything's covered in gold. You know, there was a reason the Romans wanted to burn the temple. And by the way, archaeologists have still found in recent days uh, specks of gold that are so small they know that it had to be a fire this hot to have, to have minimized, atomized gold to this small a size. The whole thing was gold inside. He says also, a million talents of silver. If that gold was impressive, a million talents of silver. Bronze and iron beyond weight. There's so much of it. Timber and stone. To these you must add... Now remember, Solomon's going to take over David's kingdom. Everything David has done and prepared. You're going to use stone cutters, masons, carpenters, all kinds of craftsmen without number, skilled in working gold, silver, bronze, and iron. And this is what he says... Get up, Junior. Get up and work. The Lord be with you. That you're on a mission from God. I've done everything I can and I'm passing the baton to you and this is God's work for you. You're going to build God's house. And Solomon's temple, of course, stands. This is about 1000 B.C. Stands until 586 B.C. when it's destroyed by the uh, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. That's what David's about. Not only that, 1 Chronicles 28 David doesn't just provide the stuff. David provides Solomon with the blueprints. The plans were all from David. This whole gig was David's. God just said, you're a bloody guy, and so you're not going to be the one that builds my temple. Your son, whose name means peace, he's going to build my temple. Ultimately, you know, Jesus comes. (laughs) The second coming is not the lamb, it's the lion. The second coming, Jesus puts down all opposition but he eventually institutes a kingdom that's characterized by peace. So how are we, as far as being characterized by just this attitude of praise and worship, and and just think a little bit, thinking about David, uh, where this goes. Does God's glory, does God and God's things, does God's glory affect me? Uh, you know, we're, we're building an addition onto this building. This is not a fundraising uh, queue here. It'll be good because it helps the church. It helps the fellowship of the church, all of which is great. But it, the building's not the church. The people are the church. D- do we look at each other? Do we look at the body of Christ as that place that we mean to invest in intentionally for God's glory? That your impact on me and my impact on you, that does something related to God's house, which is His temple today, which is the church. The church is His temple. Are we thinking about, do we pray about, do we consider, God, how do I glorify You, Christ? How do I magnify You by what I do in Your church, in Your house today? Or think of this, future plans. Does that affect my plans as it did David's? Everything was about providing for the temple. My financial giving, my acts of service, the way I'm spending myself, saving and spending myself in life, my hopes for children, grandchildren, and Christ's church. You know, as a parent, do I say to myself, my children are on loan from God and my work here is to to develop devoted disciples of God for God's glory. 
Or if I'm a grandparent, is that my prayer for my grandchildren? Or if I'm serving in the church, do I see the opportunity to serve toddlers in the church as investing for God's glory in God's house? Because I should. So you got this thing with David. It's just this faithfulness. It's faithfulness in action. He sees life through the lens that God provides, not just what his eyes see. And you look at his life, and his life is all about honoring God. Putting God and God's things first, it affects everything he does. Truly, truly a man of faith. You know, at the end of the day, uh, David's greater son is the one that all this points to. And David does have feet of clay, and we all have feet of clay. Martin Luther King Jr. has feet of clay. Your greatest hero in mind, short of Christ, is imperfect. Look at him long enough and you'll see it. Jesus is the one everything points to. He's the perfect man whose heart is fully and only for God and God's things. He faces the giants of sin and death on the cross. Guys, we couldn't do anything about these giants. Jesus is the only one. He saw past death to the Father's plan to glorify Himself, to take a bride, the church, to enjoy pleasures forever, born of His temporary suffering. That's what Jesus did. He's the King of Psalm 2. He's the theme of the songs of David. He is the God of the ark. He's the God of the covenant. He's the God of the temple. He's the God of the tabernacle. He's the Son God promised to David who would build God's house and rule God's kingdom forever. So we want to take cues from David as God means us to that we see key elements of the life of Christ in David and that should be reflected in your life and mine too. Why don't you stand with me and we'll close by reading some of the words of David in 1 Chronicles 16 Verses 8 through 10. Worship guys will come on up. Read with me, please. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wonderful works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice.